we are from the poverty. We have passed through the difficulties. We know what our people need. We are the right people to carry out what can change our own people. I still believe and trust absolutely that the solution is in the origin. The solution to migration is not in the Western world, but rather in our own countries. Be the change you want to see in your community. Be the change yourself. I am the Minister of Education of my country. I'm the President of the United Nations of my world. It's my responsibility. The idea is very simple. Let's take action. No matter how big or small, the idea is take action. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I'm your host. Thank you for joining me as we speak with practitioners of all career stages and organizational affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different guests. Our guest today is Usman Umar. Usman is originally from Ghana, but at the age of 13, he decided to migrate to Europe and he traveled across the African Sahara on foot, where after four years, he eventually arrived in Spain, where after spending three months sleeping on the streets, a Spanish family adopted him and he continues to live and work in Barcelona today. In 2012, he founded an NGO named NASCO Feeding Minds, which aims to create a network of computer classrooms in rural areas across Ghana in order to familiarize children with digital tools and facilitate their access to information. In order to address some of the reasons that cause people to decide to migrate in the first place, He's also written an autobiography entitled Journey to the Land of the Whites, where he shares his life story. Usman, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Safa, it's really amazing being on your program. I'm really interested to have this conversation with you. Likewise, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Uh, in the introduction, I mentioned a bit about your story and background and what led you to found your NGO, NASCO Feeding Minds. But in your own words, could you share a bit about your, your journey and why you left Ghana and how you eventually started your NGO? Thank you for the opportunity. The fact is that you make a very good summarization of my life experience, my life history, and that a lot of details, of course, that we can um, clarify out. But uh, the main idea is that I was also born in a very typical small village in Ghana, in the deepest forest area of the country. And I've always dreamed of going to the White Man's Land because in Africa in general, in Ghana specifically, mostly all young men and women think that Europe is like a paradise, is the solution to all our problems. So as a child, I also aimed of one day going to the paradise, but I had no idea what exactly paradise or Europe was. Um, as a matter of fact, in my village, I never went to bed without eating or anything like that. I know very well that most people always think that when they mention Africa, the only idea that comes to our mind is poverty, disaster, horrible situation, hunger, and all those kind of things. Yes, it could be possible, but we need to remind ourselves that Africa is the second most biggest continent in the world. It has more than 54 different countries. This means that each of these countries has hundreds of problems by itself and, of course, hundreds of advantages or opportunities. So all I need to summarize on the concept of Africa is that Africa is not a country. It's a huge amount of different, different countries, specifically 54 different countries. In Ghana, where I was born, Ghana used to be the British colony. And Ghana was the first African black country that obtained its independence since 1957. And since then, Ghana had always been democratic. However, we have also faced our own difficulties, lack of education, lack of information. And due to this, during my childhood, I left school at the age of five, six years because I used to walk seven kilometers to go to school and, and seven kilometers back, which means 14 kilometers a day to go to school. 
And after a couple of years, I have to quit from school and help my parents in the farming activities and all that. Fortunately, I was quite good in handcrafting. So I used to manufacture my own toy cars. Everything started one day when I was playing in a square with a couple of friends with our own toy cars that we've been we manufactured. Suddenly, I saw an airplane flying in the sky and I stood up suddenly thinking, how could it be possible that this air flight could fly on the sky without any kind of engine pulling it or any kind of rope pulling it? However, my toy car can't even move one single centimeter without pulling it on a rope. So that's how I started to have an idea about the white man's land. And I really will to go one day to the white man's land so I could at least get to understand, I could get better understanding of how all those kind of things were made. Because the least information we had about the white man's was like being white for us was a synonym of being intelligent, being scientific, being a superhero, more or less. So my dream was one day to be able to go to this quiet man's land. And finally, at the age of nine, I left my village to the city to learn mechanic due to the fact that people around my father used to tell him that I was quite um, good in handcrafting. So it's better if he could allow me to go to the city to improve in my talent, my studies. In this sense, mechanic practicing. So I started working at the age of nine in the city preparing trucks, cars, and any kind of machines like that. And at the age of 12, I had to face the most difficult decision of my life, leave my hometown, my country, with the illusion that I was seeking for the way to get to the paradise, which is Europe. So I left home. I left Ghana at 12, 13 years. What I wasn't aware of was that from Ghana to Libya, where I was told if I'm able to get there, I'll be able to find a job and receive monthly salary. I never thought it was so far away from Ghana because I wasn't, I was almost illiterate. So I had no idea of how to locate myself in a map. And finally, I ended up falling in the trap of human traffickers. Um, we was abandoned in the middle of the Sahara Desert for almost 21 good days, three good weeks. It was four or six people at the beginning. After two, three weeks, only six of us was able to make it to Libya. It was really, really, really horrible. The reality overcomes fiction. I can assure you that. He who was able to urinate, to drink it back, was the most fortunate during those days. This hell situation in the Sahara Desert. Wow, as you say, very, very difficult, very, very challenging situation and experience. In other interviews, you've also shared how uh, people often refer to the Mediterranean Sea as being the biggest cemetery due to the, the many lives of migrants that are lost there. But that in your opinion, you think that the Sahara Desert is what should actually be called the biggest cemetery just because of the, the hardships and the many more lives that are lost there even before migrants are able to reach the Mediterranean Sea. So could you share a bit about that idea, that thought, and what you also observe that humanitarian aid organizations or governments or other actors think about the journey that migrants undertake in trying to cross from North Africa to Europe and what some of the common misunderstandings are in your opinion? Yes, um, the Mediterranean Sea is the closest border which separates Africa from Europe. So people, most European countries or European politicians are only focused in the Mediterranean Sea, even though I think it's a good advantage that nowadays people are focused on what is happening in the Mediterranean. But I think the biggest cemetery, as you mentioned, for me, is not in the Mediterranean Sea, but rather in the Sahara Desert, because I mentioned that out of 46, only six of us was able to survive. But that was in my group. The number of dead bodies we saw buried, which wasn't part of our group, even more than that. So, yeah, that's the truth that people don't see. It's a step far from the borders of Europe. And it's the, the horrible abandoned places in the world, I guess. Auschwitz, 
I can't, I don't want people to compare that I'm talking about being in Auschwitz, but I'm sure that today in 21st century, the most similar place I can compare due to what I've read about Auschwitz is the Sahara Desert. What I'm trying to say is that today, Sahara Desert is the Auschwitz of 21st century. Mm-hmm. And in your own journey, it took about four years to go from Ghana and make it to, to the borders of Spain. Once you did arrive, could you share a bit about what your experiences were with the government or any programs or NGOs that provided support services to young migrants, underage migrants like yourself? Yeah, yes, um, definitely. I consider myself one of the most fortunate people in this modern world. I won the biggest lotteries in life, which is having access to live, the right to live in Spain. For me, this is the biggest lotteries. We should reconsider each of, each and every one of us. My case is absolutely different, which makes me really value the wonderful luck for being alive. As you just mentioned, after four years living in Libya, which is another hell, once you overcome the Sahara Desert, I get into Libya. During those days, Muammar Gaddafi was the president of Libya, the dictator. Being black and alive was a crime. Imagine living in a country like this for good years. After all this, I was able to work and raise some money. For a second time, I felt again in the trap of these human traffickers, these mafias. I had to cross the sea twice. Once I arrived and lived in Spain, the island of Fuerteventura, we were arrested by the police. Just <laughs> the reason for only being alive in a specific time makes me a, a criminal. Why should the police arrest me just because I've arrived in their territory? I really understand and I respect totally that if the government considers the borders of the country as his home, he has the right to control who enters in his house. Each and every one of us, when you get to your apartment, you always close your door. If you make the same consideration that the government, the borders of the country belongs to its home of the government, he has the right to control. But the way they control us is not acceptable. We have different ways of treating people. I was more or less 17 years at that moment. I was arrested just like an, a criminal. I was put in jail in a prison for almost a month without doing anything, just being alive in a specific territory. I don't have to steal. I don't have to kill anyone. I don't have to do anything. Just being alive, and in this specific moment, I have to be put in prison for almost 33 good days. After these days, 33 days, I was told I have the right to stay in Spain because they control my bones, and they realized that my age was between 17 and 18 years. I wasn't adult, so I have the right, being underage, I have the right to stay in the country. And I left the prison, and I was sent to the city of Barcelona, that was 24th February 2005, alone. I arrived in the city of Barcelona alone, nothing. I had to stay on the street for almost two, three good months. A Ghanaian, I don't speak, no Spanish, no Catalan, no mobile phone, nothing. Eating on rubbish when somebody threw, throws away bread and anything things like that. Two good months still living on the street. I never feel so lonely as in the city of Barcelona. Even the desert, I did not feel so lonely. After this time, I was so lucky to meet a Spanish Catalan family who ended up adopting me, more or less, because I was almost 18 years, so they can make a typical adoption mechanism. It's a kind of responsible parents, more or less. So after all what I've passed through during my first years in Barcelona, I realized that the fact is that the human rights is not respected in these countries. I know very well that in Libya, in Ghana, it's the worst. But it's really sad to see that in Europe, for example, whereby people really claim the fulfillment of human rights and different kind of other protests and all that, but still the government doesn't apply human rights to migrants like myself. 
Earlier, you mentioned that one of the reasons you left was because you had this curiosity or this kind of idealized notion or fantasy of what life in Europe was like or could provide you. Once you did arrive and you, you spent time living in Spain, maybe with your adoptive family or just generally, what were some of the, the things you observed or realized about life in Spain compared to the ideas that you previously had about it? Yes, um, the fact is that I felt early um, in my interactions when I started to greet some people on the street, I realized that nobody answered my greetings. And even finally, I remember one woman, um, she was like afraid when I greeted her, she was shocked, she gets shocked. I was like, wow, I can't believe it. You don't respond to my greetings and you are afraid of me. I'm greeting you and you're also afraid. I'm, I'm just greeting you. So I immediately realized that what the ideas we had, I used to have about Europe, had nothing to do with the reality. That's where I learned that lack of information is the worst sickness we have in this 21st century. People could say, what are you talking about, Osman? We have internet, we have a lot of free press, media, etc. But there's still a huge lack of information, especially education. Being good student, good doctor, doesn't make you educated person. That's what I learned my first interactions here in Spain. And especially once I realized that the way people treat Black Africa's migrants was absolutely the opposite way. I was willing that once I get here, I will be accepted absolutely just like any other person. And when I realized that people treat me differently just because of the color of my skin, it, it really shocked me a lot. Mm -hmm. And speaking about these racist behaviors and reactions and sentiments, uh, when you look back comparing between when you first arrived in Spain and now in 2020, has that changed in any way? Has it got worse? Has it got better? How has it evolved over time? I'm very, very positive, and I always think that thinking positively makes things go better. I've experienced it myself in different, different areas and, and different, different parts of my life, and I prefer to think that things are getting better. However, there's a lot of work to do, because still in Spain, just a month ago, more or less, we had these migrants who used to go to a specific area called Lerida whereby farming, the agriculture, is the typical work people does there. And when it's time to collect the apples, fruits, and all vegetables and all that, people who do that, those kind of works are immigrants. And more than 200 immigrants arrived in Lerida in last month, and they were abandoned in the middle of the square. Nobody wanted to accommodate them. Even though they stayed for almost two weeks, and a footballer, an African footballer, who plays in Monaco, get to know about them. He called Lerida, all the, he asked his agent to, and he offered to pay for their accommodation, no matter the cost. All the hotels in those areas refused to accommodate them. It took them almost more than 10 days seeking for people. He is a footballer, he's a millionaire, he has money. He offered to pay, he offered to pay anything. But people still refused to give this accommodation to the people. So it's really sad when you see people, you start putting George Floyd images on their Facebook pages, Instagram pages, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Don't have to go far to be a solidarity. Be solidarity close to your home. Under your steps, there is somebody who needs your help. So I think for me, my problem is that I think hypocrisy is really increasing too much. And we really need to refocus and reconsider this couple of things. It's very, very important not going abroad to uh, be solidarity. You can be solidarity close to your house. Yes, absolutely. I think that's very well said. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is that lack of information is a big barrier. And you were almost illiterate when you started your migration journey. When you arrived in Spain, you went back to school, you went to university, and eventually you established an NGO that's really dedicated to education. 
Could you tell us about that experience of going back to school, what your observations were, or why you felt that education is such an important tool to prevent young people from migrating in the first place? Right. Definitely. Once I arrived, after all those disaster and horrible situations I passed through, I started learning Spanish once I met the family. And the more I learn Spanish, I get to know that it could be better if I learn Catalan. When I started learning Catalan, I realized that if I learn to read and write, it will make things more easier for me. So step by step, I get to know that education is something very important. And having access to information and education is one of the strongest weapons you can give to your loved ones. So the first thing I did was calling back home, telling my younger brother that please, the most important thing you can do is to feed your mind. Don't ask me money to feed your stomach. If you ask me money to feed your mind, then I will do my best to support, but I will never do anything to feed your stomach. I convinced him to go to school. I paid for his education. Today, he's the youngest candidate willing to access the parliament of Ghana. So that's how the idea all comes through. Aid, in general, have only focused on feeding the stomach of the poor. And definitely, after almost 100 years, I remember that was three months ago, Al Jazeera published a study carried out by the United Nations where they proved that Africa is poor today than 50 years ago. After billions and billions and billions of dollars that's dedicated for aid or sent to Africa for aid, after all these billions and billions of euros and dollars, how comes that still Africa is today poor than 50 years ago? Something is not working out. The strategy needs to be changed. We can't continue focusing to feed people's stomach. We need to change the strategy. We need to feed people's mind. They would make the, their own meal. They would create the opportunity themselves. Give him the right tool. Give him education. That's the main reason how comes that when I get to this point, I thought the best I could give to my younger brothers at home is feeding their minds. And of course, after convincing my younger brother, Banasco Sedinu, to study, I thought I should do something for more other young Ghanaians who are still willing to risk their lives in seeking for this dream in paradise. So we started to create the NASCO Feeding Minds Organization, which is an NGO. It's like not a vertical organization, it's a horizontal organization, not a rich who has money and comes to give part of it to the poor. No, no, we are from the poverty. We have passed through the difficulties. We know what our people need. We are the right people to carry out what can change our own people. So the NASCO Feeding Mass Organization's main mission is to give access to ICT education. Talent has no color. I consider that intelligence has no color. So let's prove that out. Once people are able to get access to the right education information, nobody will risk his life or her life five good years passing through all this horrible hell to get to Europe. And once you arrive here, you realize that people treat you just like a slave. I'm so fortunate. I'm really happy with the people I met, people who helped me a lot, who made me who I am today. But all the same, I still believe and trust absolutely that the solution is in the origin. The solution to migration is not in the Western world, but rather in our own countries, our homes. That's why I created NASCO Feeding Minds with the idea that be the change you want to see in your community. Be the change yourself. Accusing the president, accusing the minister of education, just like my case, once I had the idea, that what I did was contacting the minister of education, presenting my proposal of IT education. After a lot of attempts, finally, minister of education told me that 
he had he didn't have the budget I was requesting to take out the pilot project. For me, it was really disappointing. But I thought I am the minister of education of my country. I'm the president of the United Nations of my world. It's my responsibility that at least only one school could get computers to take out their IT computer practices. So I think the idea is very simple. Let's take action. No matter how big or small, the idea is take action. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's so many important points that you mentioned, but just to pick up at least on one of them, you mentioned how when you first had this idea, you presented it to the Minister of Education in Ghana and your disappointment at their reaction. Could you share a bit more about what it's been like to actually establish an NGO, the funding process, the steps that you had to go through to actually make this dream uh, a reality? <laughs> that was somewhere 2010 when I started the idea. So I read from some articles that some of the Spanish banks were involucrated in um, arms, selling arms to Africa and all that. So I thought if I'm the president of my country, of my world, so it's my responsibility to finance this if the Minister of Education is not taking it seriously. So I should take the responsibility to do it. So I had 6,000 euros in my account those days. I used to work as a bicycle mechanic where I get my money from. So I just went to the bank when I read the news that the, a specific bank was involucrated in armed trafficking and all that. I went to the bank. I cleared all the home money. I closed the account. And I asked a couple of friends, they lent me some money. So in 2012, I went to Ghana. I bought 45 computers with my own pocket money. I hired two teachers. I bought furniture. And that's how I started the organization. I opened the first IT lab September 2012. And right now, we have about 11 different IT centers. More than 30 different schools uses our centers. Since 2012 until now, 20,000 students have passed through our centers without any government economic support, without any institutional government uh, support, but rather just giving conferences to people, telling people the right, the truth, what I went through and what I think the solution is, which is to feed people's mind instead of feeding their stomach. So individual donations have supported and make the dream a reality. And of course, we always still need this individual support so we can continue paying our teachers, maintaining the labs and all that to make it really a change. Fantastic. So uh, you've mentioned in the past that you're kind of really trying to change the humanitarian aid paradigm in a couple of different ways. One, of course, is through the IT education opportunities that you're providing, but also as well through the way that the organization is run in a horizontal management style, not in a vertical style. Could you speak to that a bit and explain more about how the, the organization is run? Yes. Um, let me just quote out a small example. For example, right now, we did some program on coronavirus COVID-19 since last three, four months. And I was, I'm seeking for support from different, different hospitals and to get some support. And I just received a notice that the European Union was creating a specific office or a specific hospital in Ghana as the specific point to control the coronavirus in Africa. And I tried to contact them to prove to them, hey, look, in the area, the northern part of Ghana, where I have my NGO, we've taken out this action, this action, and this action. And this is what we've done. This is the impact. And now, if you will to support so we can carry it out there, because I already have the knowledge the know-how, the people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When I talk about vertical um, aid, this amount of money signed from the European Union is straight focused on building a point where the mission is to test people with coronavirus so they can control the number of infections in Africa and all that, especially, especially in this case, Ghana. So just imagine this engineers, doctors going to Ghana with this a bag full of this money to construct this hospital. On their way, they met children, women dying of other different kind of needs. 
But because the money is given focus on constructing and building hospitals for testing coronavirus, no matter how the people, what kind of needs they need, you just can't do anything. The money is given only for building a hospital for coronavirus. So this is the kind of vertical relationship I'm talking about that aid is just focused normally on this kind of concept. However, if it is horizontal, that means that any kind of help or needs or support that people need before you can get to the goal, you should help them too. Not only going straight to what the money have been proposed for. This is a small example of how aid have been working for the last hundred years in Africa. And the reason why nothing has changed. Africa is even more poor than it was 50 years. This is the reason. We can't continue working aid in the vertical way. It should be horizontal. And I think the first three principles of aid should be, one, respect. Secondly, it should be the capacity of listening to the other without imposing, just listening. That should be the second principle of aid. The third principle, please ask. If you ask and they don't want to be helped, leave them alone. If you ask and yes, they want to be helped, take action. That's my opinion. Yes, I think those steps of respect, listen, ask before action, they're so important to think about and really implement. But when you think about NASCO Feeding Minds and all the other types of organizations that exist in this ecosystem, in this sector, are there other organizations that you think are doing good work or have similar models or that you think are acting in positive ways? Yes, I've met a lot of people. I had an opportunity to, to travel to Senegal, meet wonderful people, who people who have also passed through something similar to what I've been through. And I always trust most, most, more organizations because it's more easy to see real transparency in the real work they are doing. When it comes to huge organizations and big organizations, it's sometimes very difficult that the people who is on top, they decide what to do with the money and the person on the on, on floor working, there are a lot of differences, and sometimes they divert the visions totally. You have different visions from those who are working on floor and those who are really deciding what to do with the money or where to get the money from. And for me, it's really sad that aid have turned to something like interest. There's no real interest to invest, to use a support to make something really good happening. It's just a way to, to obtain some kind of interest. Let's just be real. Africa continent produces more than 75% of the raw materials the Western industry needs to work. 75% of the natural resources for the whole industry comes from Africa. How comes that we still need aid? That's sometimes my question. How come? Is there's no real good explanation. This is simple. Let me just give, give you a very simple example. Ghana used to be the first country who produces chocolate, coffee in the world. Now, today, it's the third country that produces coffee in this world, chocolate. I promise you, I ate chocolate for the first time in Spain. I never knew what the cafe tree, why do they use it for? I never knew it. How comes that, especially Ghana, the place I come from, you throw a seed on the floor, the next two, three days, you get a plant. But still, the Western world, uh, send, my Ghana government has to import rice and other kind of basic materials for the local people to get food to eat. Somebody should explain it to me. I don't understand how comes that. But the main reason is that instead of using our land to cultivate the kind of crops and foods we eat, we've been brainwashed that planting this chocolate will give us money, is better. We have been brainwashed that we have to plant these trees. And once we plant them, they will come and buy it and give us money. 
But on the other hand, our government has to import rice. So the money you get, you still use to buy the same rice by the same multimillionaire companies that deal with the same issues. So I think aid is simple. It's very simple. It's just the ethical way to do that. Hey, look, we are not doing so bad. We are doing something. At least we are giving them aid. We are doing something. But what really needs to be done is stop stealing raw materials from our continent. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this type of analysis of the exploitative relationships, the political, larger, historical dynamics and power relationships. When you think about that history and how it continues today, whether it's through the example of the cocoa bean crop or in other ways, what do you think about the changes that have happened or haven't happened and what keeps you going despite these type of structural issues? Yes, look. Today, I'm talking with you, and it took me almost, I started since 2010, almost 10 years now since I started the organization. And I had a lot, faced a lot of difficulties. I'm still, today, we are able to talk because fortunately, last year, I was able to publish my book for the first time. And I was able to at least let people know about this drama and the real mission of my organization which is, please, let's feed people's minds and stop feeding their stomach. And I was so lucky that an editor published my book. But before that, I went to different, 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 huge organizations. I even received a recognition from the United Nations 2017 in Geneva, Switzerland. I went there and I was able to give a conference there. And who is really interested to see, hey, this guy, what he's saying is right. Let's give him economic support to be able to expand his idea. Who have done that? No real interest. I know very well that I'm really in a hard journey. But in the other hand, I'm very, very proud and happy that however difficult it is, little by little, step by step, there are a lot of people who are getting conscious are getting known about this reality, this problematic, specifically these days due to the pandemic situation we are facing, people are reconsidering the different, different aspects of our, our institutions and our systems. And this is really what will make people really know that, hey, guys, yes, there are other ways of doing things. There are other ways of creating companies. Just take it into consideration that one of the most known scientific about evolution is Charles Darwin. And due to his history, his discovery, he proved that, yes, the natural selections is the main mechanism of evolution. But what people don't really understood is that we can't accept and integrate 100% what Charles Darwin have said to our capitalism systems. It's absolutely unacceptable that if a company is not growing, you are losing. We can't always keep growing and growing. It's unacceptable. I'm not good in doctrine, but for the, the simple and the short information I read about DNAs and all that, I realize, I get to know that when we are children, our cells keep multiplying. And we keep growing until we get to the age of 18, more or less. After 18 years, our cells do stop multiplying. They only substitute those other cells who are dying. This means that the nature of humanity proved to us that you can't always keep on growing and growing and growing and growing. It's unacceptable. Naturally, it's unacceptable. We can't. Uh, expect our systems or our companies to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. We need to redirect, rethink how to structure organizations. Think of the people instead of only thinking of making and making more money and more money and more money. I think the systems, a lot of just need to be restructured. So I think my organization, NASCO Field Minds, is a really small organization, but with the truth, the passion, and this strong vision of what we are doing, 
I am absolutely convinced that we will someday get to know people who really make us this idea really get into each any corner of this world. I think that's really beautifully said. And the passion and the vision that you refer to, it's so evident in the way that you speak and in your voice. NASCO has also launched a new project called NASCO Tech, where the goal is to also generate work opportunities. So not only providing education and access to information, but also that second step of then providing work opportunities for those students. Could you speak to us a bit about that idea and the process of setting it up? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Definitely, as I've said, I started, um, what we people really need to need in this poor countries is access to information, access to education, and finally, work opportunities. If I give them IT education, I get a Cisco certification for them, and there's no work opportunities, they will still migrate. They will still risk their lives in the desert, in Libya, in the sea, and all other these horrible experiences. So to close the cycle of this idea of feeding people's minds is the project of NASCO Tech. NASCO Tech is a social company which aimed to give work opportunities to this good student that comes out of our computer classes, computer developers. So what we are on right now is that we have our first 20 good developers, selected developers in Ghana after eight years of work. These developers, all of them have been working in different, different departments, different companies and all that. So I went back and called everybody and put them together and said, guys, today you are in where you are because some crazy guy came in eight, 12 years ago and bought a computer and put it in your school. And you had the opportunity to touch the computer for your first time. Instead of buying cars, roaming around, big chains, big sneakers, I created computer lab. So today, you are here because of that. So what can we do so your younger brother would also have this opportunity? So we sat down and we decided to create NASCO Tech Code Made in Africa. As I said before, intelligence has no color. They can be a good developers also in Ghana, just like Silicon Valley, just like Bangalore in India and different other places. So NASCO Tech is a social company that's closed the circle of the whole idea of NASCO Feeding Minds. So right now, due to lack of social investment, instead of the 20 people developing we choose, we have to break down to 10. And even with this first 10 developers we choose, we are still seeking for investment to be able to carry it out. And my dream is to get work done from these developers in Ghana, from any company from the West Europe, U.S., anywhere, get a contract, let these guys do that work in Ghana, give it back to the company, prove that, yes, we can give them work opportunities in their hometowns, in their houses, in their tribes, without risking their life, crossing borders and all that. So instead of investing money to construct big walls so migrants cannot jump over Please, let's be a little bit more intelligent. Invest in NASCO Tech projects like this and together prove to the world that, yes, the migration problem is a huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. In your experiences as a leader over the years, especially as a young person, what have been your observations or thoughts about what it takes to be a young leader and the, the challenges that it comes with? Yes, um, it's a lot, first really a lot of the challenges. And um, as a matter of fact, um, NASCO Feeding Minds has no workers here in Spain. For example, all people working for NASCO, we are all volunteers. So it makes things a little bit more difficult. However, yes, we have workers in Ghana. All the teachers and engineers are, of course, they are workers for NASCO and they, all, they receive their normal salaries. 
However, it's not easy to manage. I think one of the most challenging programs in leadership is um, the capacity to manage the human resources, to manage the people, listen, understand, try to be in their shoes when there are problems. I think the most challenging have always been to deal with people. For me, that has always been my big challenge. However, I know very well that when it comes to big companies and organizations that have a lot of economic resources, for example, when you pay somebody to do a work for you, then because you are paying him, he's automatically forced to carry out the work or do his job. However, when it comes to volunteering, it's a bit complex because you can't force people to meet deadlines as you're willing to have it. And beginning, they always prove like, wow, they are going to help, they're going to do a lot of things. And finally, they get a different job or something changes in their life and they stop providing or they can't fulfill their promises. And this is really disappointing. I think as a young leader, what I think is really challenging is managing people. Yes, that's definitely a challenge. But when you think about the work you've done with your organization, the book you've written, what would you say you're most proud of now that you're on the other side of those those dreams? Although, of course, there's still a lot of work to do and you your dreams continue to grow. But what would you say has surprised you the most or fulfilled you the most in your work journey so far? A lot of things that really makes me proud. Um, when I go back to Ghana, when I go to these schools and I see these children happy in their faces, for the, the smile in their faces, having the opportunity to touch a computer for their life for the first time in their lives, for me is the most greatest reward I could expect. And definitely, it also makes me really proud when I saw my younger brother who was in mood of selling the cows, the fowls, everything to be able to follow my footsteps, to Libya, risking his life. And I was able to convince him to stay back. When I saw him giving speeches in parliament or when I saw him taking actions in Ghana, in this aspect for me, I feel like, wow, if I die today, I will rest in peace. I fulfill my mission. And finally, when I saw a lot of people from different places of the world sending messages, after watching my YouTube videos or watching our programs and people send me a lot of messages, definitely for me, it's really, really, really encouraging seeing this, reading all these kind of messages, knowing that in places like Argentina, Colombia, even the US, people get to know about what I'm doing and my life impact them to change for the better for me. I think I have no words to really thank the opportunity of getting to this point. That's wonderful. You know, you mentioned sharing your story publicly and your YouTube videos and your book where you share honestly and openly about the experiences you've had. Do you ever feel a bit uncomfortable by sharing these these personal stories or these difficult experiences, these sometimes traumatic experiences with, with the world? I think that um, each and every one of us, we have, our, we have missions for being alive. And it's sometimes difficult and disappointing if you are struggling without knowing what is your mission in life. And in my case, I consider myself that I'm really, really lucky to know that my mission in life is one give voice to all my people, my friends and people I met on the way who died and couldn't make it today to be able to explain their story. Being the voice of all these people, for me, is one of my main reasons that always makes me wake up every morning and happy of being awake. And secondly, working in the source of the origin to avoid that future victims should fall in this horrible trap. This is the two missions of my life. So when I give conferences, I'm fulfilling the first mission. So yes, uh, sometimes I get people who are not absolutely convinced on what I'm saying, and they used to ask some questions who are not so accepted and all that. And But I have no problem. I don't feel uncomfortable in telling, say, talking about any kind of thing about my life. I think I'm quite really, I'm really happy of what I'm doing and I have nothing to hide about. 
for me, I think it's always you know, a huge opportunity of sharing my experiences or giving voice. It's a way that I think all these guys, friends and people who died on the sea, desert and prisons in Libya, their spirits have been talking through me. I'm not just talking about me. I'm just a voice, but the energy, the powerful, the passion is being put in by all these people who've not been able to arrive alive to explain these issues. So I don't feel uncomfortable at all. Mm-hmm. The energy that you refer to and all the spirit of your companions and your friends on the journey, I think that energy and that spirit is really evident in your words and the passion that you have about your mission and the work that you're committed to doing. You know, just as a way to wrap up, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share in terms of the, the urgency for changing the way that humanitarian aid is delivered in your opinion? Yes, of course, there's a really huge urgency for change and um, we need to divert the way of aid. We need to restructure how aid has been structured for the last 50, 60 years. And for me, I will be very, very happy that people on huge humanitarian organizations sit down and reconsider this mission. Instead of vertical systems, they should convert into horizontal instead of feeding people's a stomach, let's feed their mind. I know it's really hard to make these kind of changes, but if we really want to make impact, we need to restructure uh, the strategy of aid. For me, I think we are human beings and it's our nature proves that we need to help others. The Pope Francisco says some words some three, four months ago that let's all just look at nature a river flows down for people to drink, but it doesn't drink its own water. A mango tree makes fruits of mango, not for the tree itself to eat the mango fruit, but it creates mango for people to eat it. The sun itself comes out every day, bright, so vegetables can get solar energy to grow. This means that being alive, human beings, we live to help others. The nature is a huge, fantastic university for us. We just need to relax, sit down, and look at what the nature is trying to teach us and reconsider this kind of things. If you live only for yourself, that means that you are not prepared to live in this world. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, that imagery of the nature. It's it's very touching and a great way to wrap up the conversation. Thank you so much, Usman, for your words, for your time, for sharing your thoughts. I invite our listeners to read your book or go to the NASCO Feeding Minds website and donate if you'd like to support Usman's work. Thank you so much for, for everything. You're most welcome, Safa. Thank you also to our listeners. We invite you to join in on the conversation. You can do this in a couple of ways. Number one, you can send us a short voice message sharing a specific ethical issue you faced in your work in this sector. You can visit our website and hit the send us a voice message button for more details on how to do that. Or number two, you can send us an anonymous letter to your younger self sharing what you wish you had known when you first started working in this sector or any tips or insights that you've gathered along the way. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for our newsletter on our website, listening and subscribing to our podcast on your preferred podcast player, and following us on social media. On our website, you can also find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing similar conversations with you all next time. Until then, take care.